0: This week on the Back Table Podcast, five six years ago, there was a, a very very vocal group that believed that the endpoint should be a hundred percent clot extraction, and I think many of us have evolved since then and believe that the endpoint should be laser focused on taking the strain off the right ventricle, and so as a result. If at a certain point in the procedure, and we have our own way of uh, evaluating this at at Mount Sinai, but if we feel that we have taken out a quote-unquote significant amount of the thrombus and we're able to perform a hemodynamic assessment of the the right ventricle and and the right heart pressures, and we feel that it's been significantly improved and the right ventricle has been stabilized, we will stop the procedure at that point. And that is regardless of whether we've extracted... 90% of the clot, 70% of the clot, even 50% of the clot. As long as we have taken the strain off the right ventricle, stabilized its function, we view that as the the most important endpoint.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable podcast. If you're a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back, and thank you for listening. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or our website, which is backtable.com, very easy to remember. Subscribe to the show, leave us a review, or reach out to us on social media. Now a quick word from our sponsor. Panumera's Lightning Flash is the only computer-assisted vacuum thrombectomy device on the market to address venous and pulmonary thrombus. Featuring Lightning's latest microprocessor, Lightning Flash uses both pressure and flow-based algorithms to detect thrombus and blood flow. The Lightning Flash catheter is made with Max-ID Hypotube technology, allowing an inner diameter similar to large-bore catheters while maintaining a low profile. When it comes to thrombus management, Lightning Flash is designed for speed, safety, and simplicity. Product availability varies by country for the complete number of IFU summary statements, please visit penic.info forward slash risk. That's penic.info forward slash risk. And now back to the show. We have an excellent topic lined up for today. We're going to be discussing new innovations for treating pulmonary embolism, PE. To navigate this topic, we have the good Dr. Robert Lukstein from Mount Sinai Health System in New York. Dr. Lukstein, thanks for coming on the show.
0: Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here.
1: So, real quick, just icebreaker, um, can you give us a little bit about your background and
0: uh, your just general practice, broad strokes? Thanks for the question. I'm a practicing interventional radiologist, uh, practicing in New York City at the Icon School of Medicine in New York. I have a practice specifically focused on peripheral vascular disease. And again, I've been practicing in New York City for about 25 years now. Specifically, my areas of interest are peripheral arterial disease and venous thromboembolism.
1: So I've seen you talk at SIR a couple of times. I went to a couple of your uh, PAD talks. Very, very good, very dynamic speaker. Has it always been those two things? Did PAD... I mean, I know, I think you're well known for PAD. I just
0: didn't know um, you were very interested in the PE space. So again, great question. I think that Looking back on this journey uh, that I find myself on, I was invited by a a very close friend and colleague to go up to one of the PERT meetings up in Boston six, seven years ago now. And the idea of a team-based response to treat pulmonary embolism for me was really a rumor. And I I went up to my first PERT meeting up up in Boston, and I found all these incredibly intelligent, charismatic, motivated people that truly believed that they were on the cusp of changing the way that we were treating acute PE. I found the meeting intoxicating. I instantly volunteered to be part of the working groups that were uh, changing the PERT consortium. I ultimately found myself on the board of directors and uh, became president of the organization a few years ago. And it, is, it has largely come to fruition, where uh, in my humble opinion, this is the most exciting space for cardiovascular disease uh, research and innovation right now in the world. So it, it really could not be a more exciting time to be uh, focused on treating acute pulmonary embolism.
1: So if I, I can rewind back to before that meeting invite, what did the what was the landscape at Sinai for
0: PE treatment? The landscape, in my opinion, was relatively immature. The care was fragmented. The patients that were coming in most commonly through the emergency room didn't truly have a dedicated physician team to take care of them. Uh, A patient on one given day would be admitted to one service, on another given day would be admitted to another service. There wasn't consensus on how to treat patients. And quite frankly, the only therapies in our armamentarium were uh, medical. And so the majority of patients were receiving uh, anticoagulation. A very small minority were seeing systemic thrombolysis. An even smaller percentage were receiving open embolectomy. And we really didn't speak on a regular basis. There wasn't consensus. There wasn't any kind of quality assurance or performance improvement mechanism to make sure that the care was uh, being iterated on a a regular basis. So it was really ripe for innovation. And at the time, which was about 2015, 2016 was when uh, many of us came together, which were the service line leaders at the time to form the inaugural Mount Sinai pulmonary embolism response team.
1: So if we can fast forward to where the PERT team is now, what does it look like? Who does it consist of? And what are some of the unlocks? Um, like if you had to you know, pick out the top three things and somebody who's trying to build a program that you know, you've kind of learned along the way, the hurdles that you had to overcome?
0: Great question. And uh, if there's one thing I can tell you, if you've built one PERT, you've built one PERT. Even in New York City, uh, many of my colleagues who I speak to almost daily about this issue there are subtleties and there are differences between the PERT that I work with at Mount Sinai and uh, maybe some other PERTs at other academic medical centers or other community-based-based practices. So first and foremost, there needs to be a, a sense of humility, and you need to have an environmental awareness that the idealized vision of what you would like your PERT to be might not be pragmatic based on your local resources. At our institution, we, again, had a meeting of the minds, so to speak. There were numerous service line meters that, uh, that, that met in a, in, a, in a boardroom on a regular basis over the course of months. And we decided at that time that the uh, first line responders and clinical leads at our program were, were going to be the pulmonary critical care team. And uh, that foundation uh, led to all of the clinical work that we've done since then. The major endovascular stakeholders at our health system is interventional radiology. And uh, I'm you know, very honored to serve as the uh, chief of interventional radiology at Mount Sinai currently. And we also have buy-in from the uh, mechanical circulatory support team across the uh, system which is a, a combined collaboration with cardiology and cardiac surgery. And then obviously we were very, very close working colleagues with our uh, cardiac surgery colleagues that perform embolectomy when needed. There, there are a number of other stakeholders, hematologists, diagnostic cardiologists, um, but, but those were the, the, the three pillars. And it was founded on the concept of being able to provide state-of-the-art, evidence-based medical care, endovascular care, and mechanical circulatory support and surgical care for every patient uh, across our health system. And uh, we're clearly in a much better place than we were six, seven years ago, but we all also are very, very humble, and we feel that there's always opportunities to improve the care that we're providing to our patients on a daily basis.
1: So point taken that each team is unique and there'll be local differences and, and regional differences, but if, if something st- is there anything that stands out to you as um, a big unlock or or whatever just jumps like top of mind as something that
0: really helped move the program forward? Well, the biggest hurdle to address that is can you provide what I just referenced, which is you know, really state-of-the-art evidence-based care 24-7, 365. And it has to be able to be provided for medical care for endovascular care and against surgical care or mechanical circulatory support care. So as an example, we had to go through from an endovascular point of view and make sure that we had access to all of the approved technologies, that we had operators that could provide these technologies to every patient in the system 24-7, 365. And just saying that you can do it is, is it's not that simple. We had, we had to really, really work on it. And quite frankly, it took several years to make sure that all of our endovascular operators were providing care of a high enough quality that we really felt that we could provide this seamlessly to all of our patients. Similarly, we had to go through a number of conversations about making sure that mechanical circulatory support and open embolectomy was available to all of our patients as well. And again, just saying that you want to do it, it's not that simple. You have to really realize where your resources are and can you truly provide it to every uh, patient. And from just a pragmatic point of view, we're covering care for eight hospitals within our healthcare delivery system. We're really only providing this incredibly organized, comprehensive level of care across the entire spectrum at two of those eight hospitals. And so we've chosen a model where a significant number of patients are being transferred into these two hubs, if you will, where there is mechanical circulatory support, the most advanced endovascular techniques, and even open surgery on a regular basis.
1: So segueing directly left turn to patients, and I'll kind of open it up however you want to start with it in that. We can talk about patient presentation or clots, or I just want to talk about the patients that get referred to you, referral patterns, and who you guys are seeing on a regular basis.
0: So our current state in uh, you know the summer, fall of 2023 is that the point of contact for the overwhelming majority of patients is through the emergency room. We estimate that three quarters of our patients are initially presenting to the emergency room. And our workflow is that once the uh, CT pulmonary angiogram confirms that the patient first and foremost has an acute pulmonary embolism, and that there's evidence of right ventricular strain, we triage them to determine whether they are intermediate high risk or intermediate low risk, or unfortunately, if they find themselves to be high risk patients at that moment, the PERT is activated. And we have our frontline responders, which, uh, as I previously mentioned, are the pulmonary critical care team. And they see, uh, see the patient, triage the patient, and they ask for everybody's input about where, where and how we feel these patients should be optimally managed. A significant number of patients, especially those patients that are highly symptomatic, that fall into the intermediate high uh, risk stratification category, routinely will be evaluated for a endovascular reperfusion procedure. A very, very small percentage of patients, typically high-risk patients, will be triaged to receive either systemic thrombolysis or be placed on mechanical circulatory support. The remainder of the patients, typically intermediate lobe patients, will be just admitted and observed and typically will be transferred to receive oral anticoagulation therapy and then discharged after a brief observation period. Any patient that gets stratified into the low-risk category will typically be a discharged with close follow-up with our uh, pulmonary hypertension team and and in an outpatient setting.
1: So this is kind of a guess what I'm thinking question, but one of the things I wanted to to tackle is, How important is the CTA and the overall clot burden as far as to segwaying your patients into like the risk stratification? I wanted to kind of get this out of the way before we moved on to the actual patient criteria. Sure.
0: So I would say very confidently right now that in 2023, clot burden is not the most important variable. It's really the patient's clinical presentation. We've had patients with very impressive clot burdens that to the uneducated eye would would be perceived to be overwhelming, and yet the patients are extremely well compensated, they're minimally symptomatic, and when we perform a functional study of their right ventricle, most commonly a transthoracic echocardiogram, the right ventricular function is preserved or normal. And those patients, we, we will, again, maybe observe them for a day or so, but if they remain minimally symptomatic to asymptomatic, we will not offer advanced techniques for reperfusion. Alternatively, we might have a patient that has thrombus distributed in a few lobes, our lobar arteries in the pulmonary circulation that are incredibly symptomatic. And it could be that the patients have preexisting comorbid conditions. They might have COPD. They might have preexisting coronary obstructive problems. Uh, They might have a previous history of venous thromboembolism. And these patients are extremely symptomatic, tachycardic, hypoxic, experiencing severe chest pain. And when we perform a transthoracic echocardiogram, we might see that their right ventricle is severely dilated or failing. And those patients, we might be very aggressive to offer a reperfusion strategy. So clot burden right now in 2023 is not the most important variable. Uh, Again, I would say very confidently that the clinical presentation and the symptoms and uh, we're all we're all very very focused on the right ventricular function as being the rate determining step to decide how quickly and how aggressively we offer uh, our more advanced therapies and so you touched upon it already so rv function or
1: dysfunction uh, some of the parameters you use ct cta is that kind of like grossly
0: or CT is, is, is a great screening study and you know, slightly off topic, but we're actually employing an artificial intelligence algorithm into all of our CT angiograms across the um, health system. And so the endovascular team, as well as the mechanical circulatory supports team, receives alerts on our cell phones that a you know central pulmonary embolism that's demonstrating evidence of right ventricular strain on the CT was just diagnosed. It's able to quantify the right ventricular strain automatically without any human input whatsoever. And so we'll get an automatic readout of the RV to LV ratio. And that allows us to rapidly respond to a patient that again, most commonly will be presenting to the emergency room. We'll take that information, see the patient, do a very detailed clinical evaluation. Most commonly we'll supplement that evaluation with the transthoracic echo to really get a sense of how well the, the right ventricle is is either functioning or failing at the time, and then we'll make a group decision about whether to offer advanced therapies.
1: So I think it's easy sometimes to look at RV dysfunction. Like if you read the literature of the papers,'ll they'll, they'll talk about um, echo, they'll talk about labs. Can you speak a little bit to the frontline um, practitioners? Like, what does it mean whenever you go to evaluate the patient? Like, what are the specific, like, targeted exam things that you're looking for in terms of, like, does does the patient pass the the sniff test or or kind of what are you looking for in, in your physical exam?
0: Sure. Uh, again, I, th- I think in 2023, we're all looking for the the so-called intermediate high-risk patients or high-risk patients. High-risk patients are, are in shock typically. And so the, those patients present in a very, very conspicuous way. The intermediate high risk is a little bit more subtle. but if I if I were to generalize it, I would say that any patient who comes in with a central clot and I define central clot out to the low bar level or more more proximal, with signs of RV dysfunction, uh, and typically right ventricle dilatation where the right ventricle is more dilated than the left ventricle or a RV to LV ratio greater than 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 one can be diagnosed on CT. A transthoracic echo is more sensitive and more specific for that. And in addition to that, they have biomarker evidence of right ventricle uh, myocardial injury as evidenced by a serum troponin leak or an elevated BNP or brain nature uretic peptide combined with Abnormal vital signs, so a patient who's tachycardic, a patient who's tachypnic, a patient who's requiring supplemental oxygen—all of those factors together define the intermediate high-risk patient. And so, when we when we're evaluating a patient and we see that they have abnormal biomarkers, that they are tachycardic, that they are tachypnic, those are the patients that we consider uh, advanced therapies for. A more subtle again, sign is the patient might be comfortable lying in a stretcher, again, typically in the emergency room, but even getting them up to ambulate to something as as simple as going to the restroom, If if their heart rate starts to go up significantly, or if they start to feel chest pressure or chest pain by even ambulating a few yards, that's another sign that the right ventricle is under much more strain than you would appreciate with the patient at rest. And all these together will put a patient into the intermediate high-risk category. And those are the patients that we're evaluating right now for advanced therapies. Is there anything
1: to speak about as far as um, comorbid conditions and how it kind of muddies the water? Like if you don't have a clear background on someone's health and then they come in, maybe underlying COPD or massive obesity, that how these things can kind of make it more challenging to tease apart, you know, is this pre exit Go ahead.
0: The Challenges become with patients most commonly with altered mental status about what the duration of their symptoms were. And I think all of us that are treating patients with acute pulmonary embolism on a regular basis really struggle with sorting out the either acuity of the presentation or the chronicity of the presentation. And so uh, we don't know exactly the right questions to answer patients that are slightly altered. There are many times when we ask a patient and they might say they've only had symptoms for 24, or 36 hours. But a, a much more detailed history will reveal that the patient's been short of breath for weeks or months um, with intermittent exacerbations. But unfortunately, the most recent exacerbation, quote unquote, tipped them over the edge and brought them to the emergency room. That history is obviously much more consistent with a chronic presentation. And those patients that have chronic uh, thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, at least right now in 2023, they're not really amenable to these advanced reperfusion techniques. At least most operators are not trained to, to, to offer them to that cohort. And many of us believe that the procedures have a slightly higher adverse event rate for those patients. And so history really becomes critical. And I personally, and I think many many of my colleagues struggle with sorting out who is truly really presenting with acute symptoms and who has a more chronic presentation.
1: Sure. All right. So let's talk about the procedure. Super high level. Can you talk about um, patients on the table, broad strokes, what you want to be in place and what your thinking is as far as equipment,
0: access? So the Endovascular procedures have evolved very, very rapidly over the last seven to eight years. And when I first started to become interested in this and when we first assembled our PERT team at Mount Sinai, the most common procedure that we were offering was catheter-directed thrombolysis. And and I would say the most common technology we were using was ultrasound-accelerated thrombolysis. That was a relatively low-complexity procedure. Um, we were offering it very, very liberally, and we were seeing excellent results um, because that was really the only FDA-approved technology that was available at the time. Uh, in terms of endovascular setup, I think we obviously preferred to have fixed-room fluoroscopy for these procedures. Uh, we wanted to obtain very, very detailed pulmonary angiograms to be able to map out the distribution of the thrombus. We needed he- hemodynamic setup so we could measure the right heart pressures and perform a right heart catheterization, so to speak, to be able to uh, make sure that we could understand the strain that the right heart was uh, was under. And then uh, at that time, we needed a critical care setting to be able to provide disposition to the patients. Typically, these infusions would last for anywhere from six to 12 hours, and so we, we couldn't leave the patient on the interventional table, as an example, and so we had to designate a, a specific intensive care unit within the institution to provide care for these patients while treatment was undergoing. When the thrombectomy systems were approved, now it's you know four or five years ago now that they were approved, it was truly a game changer and it brought the question of, could we be providing care for these patients, quote-unquote, on the table with single-session therapy? And this is a, a much more complex procedure now than what it was, uh, again, seven, eight, eight, eight years ago. And the, the first-generation equipment, the, the larger, bulkier equipment, really required that you were prepared uh, for almost anything. So you needed a, a, a much broader uh, endovascular toolkit. You needed to be able to um, provide a vasopressor support if the patients decompensated in the room. It was really around that time that we made a decision as a, as a, as, as a group, and this was the, the whole PERT that made this decision, that all of our thrombectomy procedures were going to be performed with an anesthesia team with um, invasive monitoring. And we've standardized that now across our, our system, and uh, as a result of that, we've, we feel that we're providing a, a much safer environment to perform these procedures. Now that we're into the introduction of you know so-called second-generation thrombectomy systems, what's been amazing to see is that the, the procedures are much faster, they're much easier to set up and implement. And we're just finding that we have a, a, a comfort level where we can provide these invasive reperfusion strategies to a broader segment of the population.
1: Fair to say when you were describing the uh, ultrasound-assisted thrombolytic therapy, um, ECOS catheters?
0: Yes, the, the ultrasound-accelerated thrombolysis, The that's the uh, so-called generic term for it. The, the, the trade name is ECOS right now, and it's currently being uh, manufactured and distributed by uh, Boston Scientific.
1: Is that part of the practice anymore? Is that still have any place? Like, so some of those old line therapies. I'm just curious if that's still part of so, the, yes, the algorithm. We mm-hmm. we
0: are still providing this, and again, uh, in you know full transparency, we are one of the enrolling sites for the um, HyPythos study, which was the the first prospective large randomized trial uh, evaluating a reperfusion strategy versus anticoagulation. It's the sort of large scale version of the Ultima trial, which was the first randomized trial. Ever to evaluate an uh, endovascular strategy versus anticoagulation alone, so it is still part of our practice, and we're we're very supportive of all prospective randomized trials evaluating uh, uh, endovascular therapy for acute PE, and we are participating in the HyPythos study.
1: You also mentioned, you know, what your current or what your practice has has migrated to, but large bore catheter thrombectomy. And so there's there's kind of an assumption that aspiration thrombectomy using large-bore catheters is necessary and effective for thrombus removal. Have you felt that that trend is accurate or directionally accurate, maybe?
0: Yeah. So I, I would answer that by saying that at the time when the large-bore systems were approved by the FDA, they were the only technologies that we had available. And I alluded to this a moment ago, but they were truly first-generation technologies. They were relatively rudimentary. A number of operators across the country from multiple specialties got exposure to this, went through their learning curve process. Not everybody felt that they could perform this procedure safely. There are, without question, very experienced users that are providing this, this strategy to a number of patients on a, on a regular basis, but quite frankly, it's not a procedure for everyone. And so now we have several other technologies that are approved. We have a number of other technologies that are being evaluated through the IDE process, but we're now at the point in time where we're, we're embracing second generation technology. And the second generation technology is looking at what the shortcomings were of the original large bore systems, really putting the patient at the forefront to try and create a, a procedure that is easier to use, faster, more reliable, ultimately safer so that we can treat a broader segment of the population in a more reliable way. And it's one of the more exciting aspects of the field to see how the technology has evolved over the years so that now we're seeing this incredibly you know, sophisticated set of endovascular tools being able to be used to rescue patients that require these advanced techniques.
1: So now that you guys are, or now that we all are on second gen large bore catheters. Can you? It's probably been a while since you've had to think about your own skill set. So I wanted to take it. And I mean, Sinai training program, excellent training program. So, how does it look? I mean, because you must see fellows go from their first case to their 20th case. You know, what are some of the things that they struggle with or some of the things that you see them overcome? Or is this just the same wiring catheter skills that we use to get any catheter anywhere?
0: So, I touched upon this a a couple of moments ago, but one of the major limitations to setting up a PERT is to make sure that you have access to endovascular reperfusion strategies 24-7. And quite frankly, we made a decision as a group that we were adamant to make sure that all of our endovascular providers could provide care with all the approved technologies at any given time. We had to make a commitment that everybody was going to be trained. And again, quite frankly, when we were training operators on the first generation technology, it was a very steep learning curve and we had to be humble and recognize that there were going to be limitations on how these individuals were, were getting trained, but we were absolutely committed to making sure that everybody was going to be facile with this. And everybody was going to be able to provide this care on a regular basis there are a number of other sites across the country many of my colleagues and friends that decided not to pursue that strategy where they centralized again the first generation technologies with only quote-unquote super users where not everybody in a cath lab or an interventional lab or on a vascular surgery team was going to be trained and were going to be providers and I think a lot of people realize that the first gen technologies which was just not for everybody or if you were going to make it for everybody it was going to be just a little bit more of an uphill battle One thing that I've been very impressed with was you know with the more recent introductions with these ad- more advanced second generation catheters they're much easier to use and they're much easier to train people and I, and I think that if there's one thing that I'm I'm so much I'm so excited about, is to see that this technology will be available to more operators, more hospitals, and we can provide this advanced care to rescue more and more patients across the United States and ultimately around the world. So seeing the advancements in the technology and seeing that translate to more operators being comfortable to not have such a steep learning curve, it's one of the more exciting aspects of the field right now.
1: So maybe it's a little early to go here, but I feel like we have to talk about it since we're talking about generations and evolutions of devices. Are you privy to any of the things for third generation catheters or iterations on things that we're doing now? Yeah. Or, so, I'm sorry, the, the the tech that's coming down the pipeline.
0: Sure. So the first gen technologies have been, you know, quote unquote, manual aspiration We're using a simple syringe with a a large-bore catheter to, you know, manually extract clot, right? The second generation technologies are employing vacuum-assisted aspiration and then most recently computer-assisted vacuum aspiration. And it's making the procedure so much more easy to use, so much safer And the fact that these catheters are specifically designed with the pulmonary anatomy in mind so that they are easily deliverable to the pulmonary circulation, easily used to catheterize any anatomy, regardless of the patient's configuration. It's such a tremendous improvement on the first-generation technologies that it gives, I think, most of the... Experienced operators, tremendous enthusiasm for what the future holds. I think that the third generation technologies will probably incorporate uh, different strategies to extract more chronic clot as compared to just acute clot. It will um, hopefully provide insight as to what the hemodynamic, uh, hemodynamic status is of the right heart during the actual procedure to give the operator, uh, real time feedback and it will, uh, even further enhance our, you know, current capabilities, which again, from my experience with the second gen technologies, which the procedures are so much faster than they were with the first gen uh, technologies to make the procedures very, very reproducibly fast, which in my opinion, it only makes the procedure safer. And, and I think that will expand access. To these advanced techniques to a much broader segment of the population
1: so digging back down into kind of the minutia of the procedure if the goal is to remove clot one of my questions is endpoint like when are you done like does every amount of clot has to be dissipated or w- when is when is good good enough
0: great question i i think that five six years ago there was a, a very very vocal group that believed that the endpoint should be a hundred percent clot extraction And I think many of us have evolved since then and believe that the endpoint should be laser focused on taking the strain off the right ventricle. And so as a result, if at a certain point in the procedure, and uh, we have our own uh, way of uh, evaluating this at at Mount Sinai, but it it is a little bit subjective right now in, in 2023, if we feel that we have taken out a quote-unquote significant amount of the thrombus and we're able to perform a hemodynamic assessment of the of the right ventricle and, and the right heart pressures and we feel that it's been significantly improved and the right ventricle has been stabilized, we will stop the procedure at that point. And that is regardless of whether we've extracted 90% of the clot, 70% of the clot, even 50% of the clot, as long as we have taken the strain off the right ventricle, stabilized its, its, its function, we view that as the, the most important endpoint.
1: We talked about it earlier that there's different ways to treat thrombus. And I was curious, is there any room in the practice or uh, the algorithm for combined modalities of therapy, like dripping thom- thrombolytics in addition to catheter-directed thrombectomy, and how often that comes up?
0: It's rarely coming up now. However, If you look at other cardiovascular regions that have gone through these iterations of endovascular reperfusion, stroke being a great example, stroke was originally managed solely with fibrinolytic agents. Uh, Then there was a a broad embraced enthusiasm towards mechanical thrombectomy systems or or aspiration systems, stent retriever technology. And now you see many, many operators using what I call combination therapy, where a a relatively low dose of a fibrinolytic agent is used in addition to mechanical techniques. I certainly think there's an opportunity in the future to study so-called combination therapy. But right now in 2023, I, I personally believe the most important unmet need is to define with level one evidence, the benefit of thromboaspiration. And uh, again, being a a true believer in the the second generation technology to prove the benefit using level one evidence of computer-assisted vacuum thrombectomy. Uh, So I'm looking forward to that as a future research opportunity in the not-so-distant future. But right now, uh, I'm I'm laser-focused on proving the benefits Of these second-generation technologies over anticoagulation alone.
1: So, actually, have on my uh, outline, it's good as places any to talk about it. The data, you know, past, present, and future. Can you kind of talk to us a little bit about the data that has brought us to where we are now, and the trials that you're excited about, either that are ongoing currently or in the
0: near future? So, we have very, very little randomized data. Um, we really only have two you know, prospective randomized trials. They were both evaluating uh, catheter-directed thrombolysis, one of them evaluating ultrasound-accelerated thrombolysis. And specifically, I'm referencing the ULTIMA trials and the Canary trial. Those uh, appear to define that you can rescue the right ventricle and take the strain off the right ventricle much more rapidly and reproducibly, with catheter-directed thrombolysis as compared to anticoagulation alone as we're embracing increasingly the role of uh, aspiration thrombectomy and and now obviously vacuum computer-aided aspiration thrombectomy in the management for uh, a qpe we need to prove that benefit and while we've seen numerous pre-market and now post-market studies demonstrating safety, and efficacy, we do not currently have level one evidence demonstrating the superiority of these technologies over anticoagulation alone. So we really have an obligation to define the benefit of thrombectomy over anticoagulation alone for specific populations presenting with acute pulmonary embolism.
1: So specifically uh, that level one evidence, is there, how far off are we from having something like this? Is this, is this near future? Is this continued evolution and where we're going to be continuing to figure it out year over year?
0: So there are, there are several prospective randomized trials that are currently enrolling. They're each designed to answer slightly different questions. Um, I already mentioned uh, HyPytho. HyPytho is a prospective randomized trial evaluating uh, the ECOS ultrasound-accelerated thrombolysis catheter versus anticoagulation uh, alone for an intermediate high-risk cohort that is extremely symptomatic. And they're really looking at the rate of cardiovascular collapse in those, in those two cohorts. The trial has um, already uh, enrolled over 200 patients, and so it's, it, it will clearly... Um, have a very impactful role uh, evaluating the role of that technology for uh, the most symptomatic patients moving forward. In addition to that trial, the NIH recently funded and commenced the PE-TRACT trial, which is a a much larger study, and it is designed to evaluate endovascular therapy as a a very large so-called concept versus anticoagulation alone. Looking at the functional status of the patient at a midterm follow-up, and so it is. It is not specifically designed to answer the question of what the status is of of the right ventricle, or 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 what are the you know specific adverse event rates. It's really designed to look at the functional status of the patient. It's also not specifically designed to evaluate a particular technology. It's le- using all the FDA-approved technologies as a larger endovascular bucket, if you will, versus anticoagulation alone. We are uh, just initiating the STORM-PE trial, of which I'm uh, very proud to serve as one of the global principal investigators. This is a a very, very focused, I I would refer to it as a foundational study, which is evaluating the role of, uh, again, computer-assisted vacuum thrombectomy versus anticoagulation alone for intermediate high-risk pulmonary embolism. The primary endpoint is solely and specifically to look at the right ventricular function in the uh, acute setting to demonstrate that thrombectomy will rescue the right ventricle and stabilize the right ventricle better and faster than anticoagulation alone, which has never been studied before. And uh, it's one of the reasons that I'm, I'm so enthusiastic about this this, this study and that there is no study that precedes this or no study that's being discussed or evaluated right now that is specifically designed to demonstrate that thrombectomy, uh, and again, this second-generation uh, technology, is superior than anticoagulation alone to uh, rescue the failing right ventricle in the acute setting. So it's designed to really answer that question and that, and that, and that question alone, And it will likely be the foundational study by which all thrombectomy studies uh, are designed moving forward. In addition to that, uh, recently announced the PEERLESS-2 trial, which is, again, evaluating the the large-bore manual aspiration uh, technologies versus anticoagulation uh, alone. That is really looking at uh, mortality as the primary uh, endpoint at midterm follow-up. Um, very different than STORM-PE, as I mentioned before, a much, much larger trial. Again, I'm I'm very optimistic and supportive of all of these prospective randomized trials, but uh, I, I, th- I think STORM-PE is probably the most important trial right now to just define and prove once and for all that thrombectomy is superior to anticoagulation alone in the acute setting.
1: So for STORM-PE, enrollment has started and had no moving target, but if everything goes according to plan, when can we see
0: that data? So we're anticipating an enrollment period of you know, approximately 12 to 18 months. Uh, we just initiated enrollment very, very recently. And so we're hopefully uh, looking to have the the enrollment completed by the end of next year. And uh, if everything works out, uh, likely having a uh, uh, the data ready to be publicly presented in calendar year uh, 25. How much work is it to put up one of these studies?
1: I mean, personally and like as a group effort, I've always been curious. I mean, it it just must seem like there's so many moving parts and so much effort to move the ball forward on, you know, good clinical based evidence medicine.
0: Great question.
1: Yeah, I would just like to hear like from the, the other side of it. Like how hard is this just to get this
0: across the goal line? Yeah, so the hard part is not identifying the unmet questions. Or the questions that need to be answered, and, and I, for one, have been you know really advocating for, for a trial like Storm PE for many years. We just we don't have any randomized data compared to anticoagulation alone for thrombectomy. I was I was so excited that we were able to commercially realize this you know second generation technology, and it wasn't until that this was you know clinically available that I felt that it was time to do this randomized trial, and so that's one of the reasons why I'm so supportive of it. What we find, and, and I speak to a number of other principal investigators for the other randomized trials, is to try to identify sites that can demonstrate clinical equipoise. There's been such a wave of enthusiasm, not only in the United States, but globally, for endovascular therapy, and yet we don't have these foundational trials proving The benefit of these technology with a level one evidence, and until we get these foundational trials done, we will not be able to incorporate these uh, reperfusion strategies or these rescue strategies into the multi-specialty guidelines that most providers look forward to to guide their uh, therapies for their patients. So the trials absolutely uh, are uh, mandatory but finding sites that can demonstrate the clinical equipoise to randomize all of these patients again i just i just referenced you know four pivotal randomized trials these are you know really important trials that all have a valuable role and the ability to have investigators that can demonstrate equipoise and believe in this science to move this field forward that's probably the the you know greatest hurdle we're we're, we're very very proud it's part of the Storm PE leadership that we've been able to engage with incredibly sophisticated sites with you know great clinical in- investigators that are committed to demonstrating the equipoise for such a, a trial. They're absolutely committed that you know Storm PE is so important to create the foundational evidence to prove once and for all that thrombectomy can rescue the right ventricle faster than anticoagulation alone. So we're we're, we're very 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 optimistic about the future.
1: Well, I'll speak for the IR community. Thank you, Dr. Lukstein, for you and other PIs who do the good work to you know make it where people like me can practice and have things to stand on. Let me backtrack a little bit. So we did the procedure, procedure success. We talked about goal or or endpoints post procedure, wrapping up the procedure. So I just wanted to touch on immediate post procedure care, what happens in the first week for the patient, and then long term how you guys manage that patient and like if they the longitudinal care involved.
0: So what we're finding is that most of our patients that have had a reperfusion procedure and our more common reperfusion procedure right now is uh, vacuum-assisted computer-aided thrombectomy, that these patients are nearly asymptomatic to asymptomatic immediately after getting off the table. We're performing almost all of these procedures uh, using low molecular weight heparin as our know, medical therapy. And so uh, we'll usually admit the patients overnight, either typical to a uh, to a standard med surge floor or uh, more commonly right now to a uh, step-down unit. And then if the patients remain symptomatic overnight into the morning, we'll transition them away from low molecular, low molecular weight heparin to a, a direct oral anticoagulant, and we'll start discharge planning. And uh, one of the things that we've seen time and time again across the United States is that the implementation of a uh, PERT team at an institution, leading to rapid triage and uh, rapid offering of uh, reperfusion procedures, is leading to shorter length of stay. And but we've also seen that our reperfusion patients or thrombectomy patients are able to leave the building much more rapidly than if they're just treated medically as well. And we, we feel that that needs to be proven with you know prospective randomized data. Uh, but we're, we're again, we're very, very optimistic and we feel that this will hopefully establish guidelines for rapid triage and rescue of these symptomatic patients, especially those that present to the emergency room. So they might only need to stay in the hospital one or two nights and then go home on a DOAC, and then be seen in our office hours in a uh, short-term follow-up, and then managed uh, you know per our protocol.
1: So, but what's the short-term follow-up? Seeing back in a couple of weeks.
0: We we'll usually you know speak to them uh, over the phone in the first week after the procedure. We will see them within the thirty-day window, uh, where we'll do uh, obviously a you know detailed uh, physical examination. Most commonly, we'll do a uh, you know functional assessment, either a six-minute walk test or a you know, quality of life assessment. And then we'll get a, you know, post procedure baseline transthoracic echocardiogram, which will be their baseline by which they'll be managed uh, forward. In many of these patients, we're seeing that TTE shows that the right ventricle is quote unquote normal, which is a you know a very rewarding thing to show the uh, patient, especially compared to their baseline where it showed uh, either moderate to severe dysfunction, even tricuspid Regurgitation in a significant number of patients, and then we'll we'll follow them based on the uh, on their symptoms, and then based on the findings of their echocardiogram. Uh, typically, at least twice a year for the first year, um, and then annually thereafter. So the next thing I'm gonna outline, and this is
1: kind of a, a throwaway, miscellaneous, garbage bag section, but IVUS, role for IVIS in these procedures.
0: Ivis is a very intriguing technology. Uh, I've, I've many uh, of my you know close professional colleagues that are adamant about using Ivis during the procedures. I was a little bit more enthusiastic about Ivis when we were using the first generation catheters, but quite honestly, um, as we're as we've gotten more and more experience with this, you know, with with the latest technology, these these second generation catheters. The procedures are so fast; we don't really have time to use IVIS. I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, re- really being very candid with you. I just did a case last uh, last week where the entire treatment time, where the catheter was inside the patient, was less than ten minutes for both sides. And so, to it, to it, to superimpose IVIS on that, all I believe that would do right now is make the procedure longer. So I I think IVUS is a very intriguing technology. I'm looking forward to studying it prospectively as part of research protocols. But now that we're, you know, widely using these second generation catheters, the procedures are so fast. I just don't know that IVUS has a role anymore. Second topic, clot in
1: transit. What is it for, you know, because we have an audience that can range from medical student to
0: advanced practitioner, but clot in transit, what is it and is it, is it meaningful so it's definitely meaningful. Uh, clot in transit defines essentially a, a deep vein thrombosis that has been liberated from typically the lower extremity circulation, and it is you know currently in a um, transient position, most commonly in the right atrium, and it is not passed through the tricuspid valve, certainly through the pulmonic valve to become a true pulmonary embolism. We're seeing a wealth of data that shows that patients with clot in transit have worse acute events and subacute events as compared to patients without clot in transit. And that's regardless of whether they have a concomitant pulmonary embolism or not. And so we view clot in transit as not an emergency, but about as close to an emergency as you can get. Historically, clot transit was managed with an open embolectomy, but now we are all endovascular operators recognizing the the huge impact of aspiration thrombectomy on the management of clot in transit. Um, there are, I think, several technologies that actually have on-label use for this application uh, to, uh, to manage this. I think there will be many, many more technologies that will obtain uh, on-label indication for managing clot in transit. We have performed at Mount Sinai, uh, I think two dozen procedures over the last several years, um, using a variety of different aspiration thrombectomy systems to manage clot in, in, in transit. And at least right now in 2023, that is our default strategy. So if we identify a, a patient with a mobile clot in the right atrium, we will offer the patient an aspiration thrombectomy procedure currently. And we found them to be highly successful and highly safe.
1: Going to surgical embolectomy, does it ever surprise you how well the large-bore catheter directed therapy works whenever you've seen, like, have you seen the pictures of like the, the path of clots that have been pulled out from surgical embolectomy? I mean, some of the things that cardiothoracic surgery pulls out, I mean, it looks like they're birthing, like, a big hunk of clot that's like the size of a forearm sometimes. I don't know if these are just the ones they show for conferences, but sometimes it's surprising how well the angiograms improve. And, you know, from surgical colleagues, some of the things that they pull out, I'm like, wow, it's hard to imagine that could get through catheters.
0: There's there's no question that, you know, surgery, if, if, you're, if you're looking at an endpoint of how much clot can you extract, surgery remains the, you know, quote unquote, gold standard for uh, surgeons that are able to go out to the segmental level with you know angioscopes and embolectomy tools, unfortunately, most surgeons or many surgeons across the United States and around the world are not that meticulous in their techniques, and they will most commonly solely extract a you know central clot, a a, a saddle embolus, so to speak. I think that was one of the uh, major issues that many people grappled with: was how do you create a technology that can compare to surgical embolectomy. It was one of the reasons that the first-generation catheters were so large, but obviously now that we're finding that you don't need to remove 100% of the clot to rescue the right ventricle, and now that we're into smaller devices that have computer-assisted thromboaspiration, vacuum-assisted thromboaspiration, we're able to extract the overwhelming majority of the clot, maybe not all of it, rescue the right ventricle immediately and perform the procedure much in a much safer manner in a, in a much more rapid sequence. So I, I think we're all evolving and recognizing that while surgery is you know certainly great and has its role in certain patients, we don't need to look at that as the sort of reference point moving forward.
1: So, Dr. Lookstein, uh we talked about uh, data. We talked about pre-procedure workup, the procedure, post-procedure workup, the evolution of PE. Any stone left unturned? Did I not ask about the, anything that's a glaring, like mistake here or oversight?
0: No oversight. I would. I would just say that to close the the loop on this topic, it it really is a, such an exciting time to be involved. As a clinical scientist, uh, looking at you know the role for endovascular therapy for a QPE, um, the fact that we have four randomized trials uh, ongoing right now just demonstrates how exciting this space is for research and for science moving forward. I'm so proud uh, to be part of the Storm PE trial leadership, and I, and I absolutely uh, believe this is the most important research uh, trial to create the foundation that uh, computer-assisted aspiration thrombectomy is superior to anticoagulation alone for intermediate high-risk patients. And I would encourage every provider uh, that's listening to this podcast, if you are treating patients with acute pulmonary embolism, to contribute to the growing data sets of prospective research, so we can really prove once and for all which patients benefit the most From these advanced therapies and we can incorporate them into the guidelines so we can start to treat the right patients with the right technology at the right time in a safe reproducible manner
1: you heard it audience call to action by dr lookstein hard to ignore dr lookstein i'll respect your time thank you so much for coming on the show we really appreciate it
0: chris thank you so much it was a great honor to to be here a great conversation
1: thank you so much for listening If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts
0: Chris Beck, Sabine Dong, Michael Barraza,
1: and Ali Behetti.
0: Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer,
1: design and
0: digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, social media and PR by Ann Dang. Manisha Naganathanahali, and Manbir Singh Subli. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kinebrew.
1: Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks
0: again for listening.